You're listening to 1001 Album Club, where each episode we discuss a different album from Robert Demery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. episode we'll be talking about the clash london calling on the line i have rob hello ben hello john hi and kyle (laughs) howdy london calling is the third studio album by the english rock band the clash it was originally released as a double album in the uk on the 14th of december 1979 by cbs records and in the united states january Uh, 1980 by Epic Records. The producer was Guy Stevens. The genre is rock, post-punk, rock and roll, and punk rock. I'm going to read from all music reviews, Stephen Thomas Erwine. Give give him enough rope for all its many attributes was essentially a holding pattern for The Clash, but the double album London Calling is a remarkable leap forward, incorporating the punk aesthetic into rock and roll mythology and roots music. Before The Clash had experimented with reggae, but that was no preparation for the dizzying array of styles on London Calling. There's punk and reggae, but there's also rockabilly, ska, New Orleans R&B, pop, lounge jazz, and hard rock. And while the record isn't tied together by a specific theme, its eclecticism and anthemic punk function as a rallying call. While many of the songs, particularly London Calling, Spanish Bombs, and The Guns of Brixton, are explicitly political, by acknowledging no boundaries, the music itself is political and revolutionary, but is also invigorating, rocking harder and with more purpose than most albums, let alone double albums. Over the course of the record, Joe Strummer and Mick Jones explore their familiar themes of working class rebellion and anti-establishment rants, but they also tie them into old rock and roll traditions and myths whether it's Rockabilly, Greasers, or Stagger Lee, as well as the Mavericks like Doomed Acker, Montgomery Cliff. The result is a stunning statement of purpose in one of the greatest rock and roll albums ever recorded. All right, what do we think of The Clash, London Calling? Masterpiece. Every accolade it has ever received. Yeah. What a... Yeah. Mm. Let, let, let me try to be a contrarian. Oh, wait, I can't. This nope. Album's fucking perfect. I don't even like double albums. And no, this it, album it's a perfect is, double album, man. Impeccable. A double punk album. Yeah. It, yeah it should be impossible. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. The Clash is like, hold my beer, Sandinista. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, yeah. Like, this is punk rock, though, at this point, guys. Uh, not, not to split hairs. Like, I, I always kind of like. This feels just more like regular rock and roll. It doesn't have the the blistering speed of like their previous outing. Like they they kind of matured really quickly out of that into uh, being better songwriters. Or maybe I'm just splitting. Hairs. I think the Clash will always be a punk band, but I think that you could definitely argue the case that this is a rock yeah. and roll record. Yeah, I think you sure. can, but I think at the same time it has an attitude that veers more into punk rock DIY aesthetics. Yeah, okay. that's fair. Yeah, um, I was going to give a brief background of this album if anybody, if nobody cares or nobody minds. I'm into it. Okay. Go go to town, buddy. Tell me a tale. <laughs> All right. So background on this album. So on their second album, Give Them Enough Rope, is produced by Sandy Perlman. Uh, and it was a little too polished. They didn't like the sound. They buried the vocals of Strummer. The Clash had started to uh, depart from punk rock sound. And... 
you know, they, they really just didn't mesh with with that producer. So they toured the United States 1979. They chose supporting acts such as rhythm and blues artists Bo Diddley, Sam and uh, Dave Lee Dorsey, Screaming Jay Hawkins, as well as neo-traditionals like uh, Joe Ellie and uh, Rockabilly, The Cramps, The Clash. Uh, growing fascination with rock and roll inspired their direction for London Calling. So after that, they call up their road manager, Johnny Green, who sprung into action. He bent, he scouted locations for them. They found a nice little rehearsal space that was, uh, at the time, being used to illegally paint cars. <laughs> uh, and they called it Vanilla Studios. Once they were in the location, they were away from the press, away from the fans, everybody. It was sort of a little club that they had there. And they decided, hey, let's go ahead and record this. We don't want to do a producer. Let's just get this out, do demo tapes, whatever. They, again, grab Johnny Green, say, go get a four track. He grabs that. They start recording. And that's what's called the Vanilla Tapes, which you can now actually listen to on Spotify and other places. So they had a routine. Every day they would play football or soccer, as we say, uh, in the concrete pitch across the way. They would rehearse, they would eat dinner, and then afterwards, if they felt like it, they would go back to the studio and rehearse some more. So they had this like amazing little uh, collaboration. You know, Joe Strummer is uh, on the typewriter while uh, Mick Jones is, uh, you know, making these these little ditties and everything's going through. Anyway, they take the Vanilla tapes to CBS Studios. And they're like, what, what is this? And Joe Strummer says, this is our album. We're ready. We're going to put this out. And they said, hell no, you're not going to put this out. This is, this is like the roughest thing I've ever heard. So Joe had this brilliant idea that they were going to reject that. Uh, no way they're going to put this out. So he counters by saying, all right, no problem. We'll do it your way, but I get to pick the producer. So he picks Guy Stevens. Guy Stevens was a producer for legendary figures of British beat, uh, blues, uh, the who small faces, the Rolling Stones, but he's a bit of a wild card, right? Loose cannon. Mm -hmm. So he gets in the studio and Joe would say he's the ultimate cure for quote, uh, musical constipation. So he, he throws chairs around. He causes a riot. He drinks in the studio. I mean, he's a bit of a wild man, but at the same time, he's smart, very smart. He was also a voice coach. So instead of burying Joe's vocals like Sandy Perlman did on uh, Give Him Enough Rope, he basically taught him, here's how you're going to you know, accentuate your different things. And he helped him on this album to really bring, bring those things up in the mix. So the only problem is Guy, <laughs> Guy does not want to do the slow but necessary task of overdubs and mixing and all these other things. So they get Johnny Green to get Guy to the, the pub, go drink with him. And while he's at the pub drinking, Bill Price, the other engineer, and Mick Jones help to move things along by doing overdubs and all these little necessities that they need to get uh, get things to move along. Anyway, comes out, sells 2 million copies on the initial release, and that's the short, very short tale of London Calling. Sorry. That's yeah. awesome. The production's <laughs> great on this record. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's fantastic. It's varied. Um, like there's that one song on here. Uh, uh, the card cheat sounds like a Bruce Springsteen song. I have the exact same note. <laughs> Absolutely. It sounds like Springsteen. <laughs> but there's so much on here too with like the layers, the, the Irish horns backing them up on some of the songs, fucking crushing it. And then I had, I had not listened to this album as a whole and I didn't realize how many other like percussive and other things they're throwing in there a lot like they threw in the what's uh, you're going to probably correct my pronunciation the the guero the like the reiki uh percussion instrument it refers to it as a cheese grater yeah exactly yeah i had no idea they had so many other different sort of little auditory nuggets they just sprinkled all over their songs so this record is this record is one of my sister's favorite records and she's not like a, a punk person but yeah, I did. You know, for years. I mean, I counted this as my favorite record. I don't know. It might still be. It's hard to okay, hard to decide. But oh, it is wow. definitely in the top top ten. 
Wow, no that's a big moment. Do you have a favorite song off of it, Birch? Is there one that that really? I I come of... back to a lot of different ones. Like sometimes I like to sing "I'm Not Down." I mean, it's just a good one to sing. Uh, sometimes yeah. "Death or Glory," which a lot of people say is an ape on a Thin Lizzy, but I don't think so. Hmm. I think it's just a solid song. But there's so many songs on here which you can just go to and say, that song, that is an amazing song. I mean, London Calling, starting off with London Calling, calling out the sort of like Oof. to other worlds, uh, talking about, you know, the end of the world. I mean, that's a way to start a record. Sort of that British, Britishism of uh, just sort of, a, <laughs> I don't know, speaking about doom that's coming. It, it's amazing. This whole, this whole thing. Like, that's uh, uh, Three Mile Island, which had just happened. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, the uh, like the the wheat's growing thin, the engines stop moving. It's like the the oil crisis, and then at the time there was even there was uh, I don't I don't want to say a blight on the crops, but there was like all of the stuff that he just like shouts out in those lyrics is like things that like each like little like several word couplet is like actual topical things that have that the world's just having to deal with at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Thames is going to flood stuff like that. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Of course. Uh, the Southern part of London is next to the Thames and mm-hmm. there was fear that, you know, and, and I guess, you know, there's all sorts of different fears depending on the times and the eras like global cooling was really the concern at the time because nuclear winter was a possibility. Uh, but you know, somewhere in there, there's also the concern about water levels. And if the Thames rose, it very possibly could have flooded, I guess, where they lived, South London. Uh, so I guess they did end up building some series of dikes or levees or something to protect it. Just, just like a couple years after this. Yeah, yeah, it was the barrier. Yeah, but that song speaks about so many different things. Uh, police brutality, uh, yeah, nuclear winters, uh, phony Beatlemania. death. Yeah, That's phony Beatlemania. I, I looked well, into the phony Beatlemania because I thought that was I always thought that was just a dig at the beat but I, I think that it was a them worrying about there being this giant punk bands that was going to like usurp their sound mm-hmm. and I think that's why they changed their sound a little bit on this record actually well actually it was uh, it was a call to arms for new bands to ignore the Beatles because they were so sick of the bands like the Who and Kinks and you know every every band that was coming up you know, people were saying, oh, well, they're like this, but the Beatles or such and such, like we've done on this podcast where you have to, you know, the Beatles are such an iconic figure. And I think the Clash wanted to say, fuck the Beatles, like, just do your own thing. We're punk, like DIY it and and stop worrying about what the Beatles did or are doing. Yeah, that's what I, Birch, that's what I thought the line was, but I, I found a quote that they were like, they were just talking about how a bunch of punk bands was like the new fake Beatlemania. I mean, this is like, you know, it 10 years the, after the Beatles broke everyone, up. Yeah, everyone, punk things are on the covers of magazines. Everyone's starting a punk band, but not everyone has the same things to say. You know, like it, it's almost like a, a fashion movement at, at, at sometimes. Yeah. Also, like uh, uh, the, uh, the end of London Calling, the, the Morse code SOS. Love that. Love mm-hmm. it. Do you guys just yeah. want to roll through the yeah. roll through the songs? I mean, that's a way to do it. We did it for the White yeah. Album. Let's do it for sure. this one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, next I'm one. So sad it wasn't there for the White Album. <laughs> Brand new Cadillac was one of my favorite songs as a kid. I just stuck with oh. me. I just felt like it's great. It was such a rocker, and it still is. I mean, it's it's them doing rockabilly, and it feels fresh. It, it, wasn't it initially uh, like their warm-up song that they would play before they started recording? Yeah, it's a cover. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's such a perfect song right after "London Calling." Like, because "London Calling" is just such a throwdown. Like, <laughs> and then then uh, this super fun kind of, I don't know. Yeah, rock and yeah, song. Yeah, love comes brand on. new Cadillac. Yeah, balls to you, Daddy. That's that. As a kid, I was always like, "What does that mean?" What does balls to your daddy mean? <laughs> so what age did you get into this record, Birch? It was early. This is one of the early records. Uh, my brother had a couple records. I mean, Metallica. But this was like a, a super early, early record. That's why I'm, I'm still surprised that it's so 
uh, and maybe a bit of that's nostalgia for these songs, but he had this one and definitely um, uh, The Clash, the self-titled 1977. This album is so accessible. I think you touched on that earlier, Birch, yeah. uh, or, or maybe you did, Kyle. Man, yeah, even to people who who don't necessarily, like their ears might bristle a little bit to punk rock. Like London Calling is just such an accessible record. I traded this album to James for a Pink Floyd record. Which, Which Pink one? Floyd? Yeah. Metal. Ugh. It was metal. Yeah. Metal? Disc? Records. It was a bad uh, trade. Sure. It was a bad trade on my end. It was a bad trade. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to it and I was like, oh, damn it. <laughs> it was a great record, but yeah. the price was too high. <laughs> Yeah, I have one up upstairs. I guess there was only the only gatefold you can get is a Japanese release. The rest of them are just uh, a one sleeve and two records in the one sleeve. It was sold for the price of a single, so that makes sense. Uh, the third you know, they're, song they're, they're, like, oh, they're passing the savings on to you. They are. <laughs> uh, third song is Jimmy Jazz, which is they said was undeniable. When anybody heard this song, they were gonna say what is going on with the clash because it's a slowed down tempo it has horns flutes it's jazzy it's got a reggae bass completely out of left field for the clash at the time he scats in it yeah i do like that he spells this whole album is for the most part kind of like oh yeah you thought you knew what uh punk rock music and the clash sounded like no we're gonna do this now we're gonna do some reggae stuff we're gonna do a song that basically shits on old rockers <laughs> like you know I, I mean i feel like death or glory is one of those songs like born in the usa where people play it and they're like yeah death or glory like no you don't you don't get it like this song is- listening <laughs> <laughs> uh the one after that hateful has some of the best lyrics i love it yeah yeah love the lyrics um great lyrics on that track uh he gives me what i need what you need what you got i needed oh so badly oh every time that one in uh this year i've lost some friends what friends uh or wait some friends some friends what friends i don't know i i I never even noticed like (laughs) so devastating yeah i mean it's very clever upbeat junkie song (laughs) it's amazing Sorry, I'm gushing. This is like one of my favorite albums. So Gosh, good. I'm it. It's okay. Uh, That's awesome, man. Riff, buddy. Uh, the next one, Rudy Can't Fail. You go off. Hooligans and Rude Boys. Don't be feckless. <laughs> Don't be feckless. <laughs> Drinking brew for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I actually never knew what this song was about. Uh, I just never looked it up. I just always assumed it was sort of like Rude Boys um ska reggae and i didn't really uh put together that it was sort of the older uh reggae clashing with the younger reggae generation so sort of the like younger rude boys being like no we're gonna be all right we drink beer for breakfast but we're gonna be okay i just always uh you know sometimes joe strummer's lyrics are just a little uh obtuse man i wish i had been I'm not the most lyricy guy. Uh, I I've loved this album for 20 years, and I wish I had just pulled up the lyrics sometime before this week. <laughs> I, I, felt same, I felt the same way about Clash self-titled. Yeah, the his like his like working class like uh, anti-capitalist lyrics. They hit me so different now than they did when I was just like a drunk college student. You know? No man, yeah. Joe Strummer is a poet. <laughs> yeah.
Uh, all right, side B, Spanish bombs kicking things on, off. And speaking of Ooh. for being a poet, this song's one of my favorite ones. On my disco yeah. casino. Mm-hmm. Not only a poet, but a historian as well. So there's so so many different conflicts. Did he, did Strummer not write this one? I don't think he did. Mick Jones, who did this? Uh, no, I, uh, no, he but, did. He did. He wrote it. Okay, because Strummer did. Jones did. Yeah, or Joe Strummer uh, dated Paul Olive, right? Of this of the slits. Yeah, both of them are dating members of the slits. Yeah, right. yeah. I'm thinking of a different song. I apologize. Part, yeah. Some of the theory behind why he sings with an Andalusian lisp in Spanish bombs is because of his girlfriend at the time who was Spanish. Uh, and then uh, Mick Jones was dating another one of the girls in the slits. Uh, and that's what they think it may be perhaps train in vain was about. Cause train Definitely. Vain, the, the words train in vain never show up in the song, but it's about maybe taking the train to her house and her not letting him in. Yeah. Yeah. But beautiful. I mean, Spanish bombs with that acoustic guitar, just uh, beautiful chords. Um, and just yeah, you're right. The it has a has a very different feel from a lot of uh, what the Clash have been doing. A little Spanish flair, uh, Hollywood fascination uh, with the right profile. Okay, I've got questions about the right profile. Sure, I've been saying. So, I I know at face value, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, what what the song is about. Uh, you know, like uh, like golden era of Hollywood actor Montgomery cliff was in a, uh, a single person car accident. He had a tele- telephone pole leaving uh, Liz Taylor's house and his face was disfigured requiring plastic surgery. And he was in the middle of shooting a movie and uh, he, he was pretty confident that the movie would be a hit because people would go to the movie just to see if they could tell the difference between his face pre and post accident. And that's like an interesting little bit of like, uh, like Hollywood lore is the song about anything else or is it just about Montgomery cliffs face? No, that's pretty much it. I think it's the, it's something that, you know, Kenneth anger and some of those other writers, uh, were writing about in that sort of seedy underbelly of Hollywood plastic surgery, um, prostitution, you know, vice in Hollywood and things like that. Like getting drunk and, and crashing your car was, I mean, it's always an interesting uh, tale to tell. One of my favorite R.E.M. songs is about Montgomery Clift. Hey, Rob. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I was just going to say, I well, wonder if Mark Hamill thought the same thing for oh. <laughs> Empire I shouldn't have let you in. Come on, guys. Oh. Let's do it. <laughs> I was it. I, uh, it, it, it wasn't there. I went all the way there. It wasn't until this week that, that I got the, the title of the right profile. I always assumed it was like the correct profile, but it was like, no, no, the cinematographers need to shoot him from his right profile because the left side of his face is weird. Yeah. Amazing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Also, yeah. Joe Strummer is a kind of a big uh, film guy, or at least he acknowledged. Uh, that he was inspired by a lot of things uh, in film. Uh, Lost in the Supermarket. What do you say? Beautiful. Beautiful so song. The, the choice of the drummer to play with toms instead of snares on Lost in the Supermarket, uh, I guess he had seen a Taj Mahal show the night before the recording, and he's like, Taj Mahal's drummer does that. Let's do that. And it really does change the feel. Like It, it, it feels rounder and kind of like pushes the sound into your chest when you hear it. Yeah, John, well I read it too, but I still hear I still hear snare drum when I listen to the song. Like, well, not right here because this is the breakdown. That's just a kick. But once like, the song's going, because I, I was listening for it because I read that, and I, I'm I don't know what to think of that because that's a snare right there. That's a snare right there. Like, because I I hi hat. Yeah, see, I think I'm here on the hi hat when I'm thinking that it's snare. So because they are kind of back on each other. On on uh, uh, once it comes in on two and four. Um, I. I I'm glad you brought that up, though, because Topper was he was kind of the secret weapon when he got introduced to the band. I mean, he's a pro and he can play anything. So when he came in on give him enough rope and then he started creating these different elements uh, for London Calling, it was it was like, I don't know, it it changed a lot. It, It meant that they could 
excel and and branch out in all these different ways because he was such a gifted drummer. And I think that it that's true. And also it didn't hurt that um what's his name? <laughs> Paul Paul uh learn to play the, the bass quite a bit better uh, for this album. I'm not knocking him, but it, he definitely excelled um, and stretched for, for this album. It seems like a running theme for punk rock bass players that like they learn to play the bass after the fact, once they're already in the band, like Richard Hell, Sid Vicious, <laughs> Paul Simonon, though Paul Simonon did get good. There's yeah. really cool bass lines in clash songs, which actually, uh, which, and we're going to talk about Guns of Brixton in a minute, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to skip ahead to Guns of Brixton. I love that song. Uh, Paul Simonon wrote the lyrics and he's the, the voice you hear singing it. In my Facebook feed today, a suggested for me video came up probably because I've been Googling the clash so much this week. That was a live performance of Guns of Brixton. In that live performance, uh, Paul is playing rhythm guitar and singing and Joe Strummer's playing that so occasionally I guess they would trade off they would trade off yeah um because it it made more sense for them to be I guess on the stage where they were and so he just they just traded guitars I've seen them do it live um and then he got the the vocal mic yeah oh great song I mean it's with your hands on your head or the trigger of your gun. I mean, dude, how so much cool. more yeah. revolutionary do you want to get in a song? Favorite clash songs are clamp down and guns of Brixton. So yeah, right back to back like that. It's just, oof. Um, this whole side too is, is just huge for me. There's like yeah. from Spanish bombs to guns of Brixton. Just that oh, whole run of songs. It's unstoppable. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't want to derail us going song to song, but have you guys heard uh, Clash live at Shea Stadium from 82? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, they're opening for like The Who. And um, they're, of course, a lot of the, the set lists are, are these songs. And they just sound incredible. Like they're playing at the top of their game. Yeah. The sound quality is astonishing. Like, yeah, if you guys like this record, definitely check out um, Live at Shea Stadium. Yeah, I will say that anything. Uh, Clampdowns on it, Guns of Brixton. Yeah, anything from like 1979 mm. to like 84 or, or so is like the prime of of Clash live performances. And they sold out um, New York like three days in a row in 1979, 1980. Uh, yeah, it was, was 19- that the Palladium show? Palladium, yeah. And people were going crazy. I mean, everybody was, was, was going there. It was, it was, pandemonium how and and people every every single person said you know it was like the one of the best shows they've ever seen in their life so uh to be a fly on the wall back then uh yeah we kind of skipped over clamp down which is yeah heaven forbid amazing song uh, maybe my favorite on the record sure it depends, yes. depends on the day of the week though you know uh i love so many songs on this album I, dude I every time Clampdown comes on, I I just find myself I'm just stomping my feet to the beat. Yeah, starts up I just get so excited, <laughs> and I love that, 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 that little uh, every other time the little Mick Jones riff. Little every other time, yeah. The best part of Beto O'Rourke's failed campaign was when he told uh, Ted Cruz that he was working for the Clampdown. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this is one of the first songs that I realized, you know, what capitalism was and how you would get trapped in a sort of capitalist uh, working day job is is the clampdown. And I think about it a lot. Yeah. As someone who's always worn a lot of blue and brown, I used to be confused by this song. <laughs> he, he thought, in two words. <laughs> like, what? I'm not supposed to be wearing blue and brown or else I'm working for the clampdown. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that song has some history too because they he wrote it specifically. I mean, he wrote a lot of the songs because he... Uh, Joe Strummer actually went to a boarding school. His dad was pretty... Uh, kind of a taskmaster and he could have had, you know, a 
what he would say, quote unquote, normal life in the suburbs and things like that. I mean, he was well off, but he realized early on that, you know, his dad would say, oh, if you work really hard and you, you know, try really hard, you can have what I have. And he just said, I don't want what you have. And so he just kind of rejected all of that. Um, but he felt sorry for a lot of the other people at school who would be invited down to like the docks or to these other places, given like a hot meal army, whatnot. And he would see them sort of like fall into these traps because people would tell them that they're no better than, you know, they can't do any better than what these jobs are, are offered to them. Sorry. Didn't mean to go off on a tangent there. No, man. (laughs) It's important to sort of say, you know, as awesome as these songs sound, there's some message behind them. There's a lot of message. And and it's hard to necessarily parse out because it is so good and it goes by so fast. So it's, it's good to stop and take a look at it. And that's good because you can just listen to it and rock out or you can, you know, take a closer look. Um, Are there, would you say there, there's like bands of our generation that are kind of carrying that, 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 uh, flame of the clash up? against me. I was going to say against, against me, me. Yeah. Yeah. Every time. I, Cause I always, I always like so many Rage. times in, in, in modern, modern days, I'm like, Oh man, like where's the clash now? Like, run the jewel. And I always come back to against me. It's funny, Ben, because yeah, run the jewels, man, run the jewels for sure. Oh. Yeah. But, um, specifically, uh, I'd never put this together until I was listening to this for this podcast, but, um, uh, that against me song Miami is pretty much London calling like updated for oh, what, 2005, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, all right. I totally hear that. Side three starts with, uh, wrong, uh, wrong, wrong. Technically it starts with their version of stagger Lee. Yes. Which is Did we skip over guns talking. at Brixton? No, we talked we, about we, it. We talked about it out of order a little bit. But if you have more to say about Guns and Brixton, yeah, this I'm, wonderful, wonderful song. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, it, it. I can't disassociate this from a story that Alex Cornia told me about being stoned in the woods with his headphones on. Guns and Brixton. Guns and Brixton is playing, and like there was a bear following him. He's just kind of like trying to run away from a bear. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> terrifying <laughs> but hilarious well, said that Alex Cornia was listening to that stone in the woods I knew something crazy was going to happen but... <laughs> uh, amazing uh, wrong on Boyo which is staggerly yes you're correct it starts with staggerly uh, but then kind of uh, moves on from that it moves on from that, but does the rest of Rong and Boyo have anything to do with Stagger Lee? Like, is is yeah? Is there? Yeah, it talks about Billy. Billy Boy not, has been not, shot. Stagger Lee's come out on top. Not, yeah, it's about not. Cheating. Yeah, I get it now. Yeah, you don't Similar cheat a man. Yeah, multiple songs about not cheating at games in this album on this album, and and the. Uh, not cheating at games and the horrible consequences if you do. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's basically an idea across of it, which is like, oh, if you're out for a short-sighted gain, you're going to have a long-term fail. And that's from London Calling all the way across. I mean, that's kind of a, a, a little bit of a thread that runs through it. Yeah, I think you're right. Really upbeat, sort of a bouncy, I don't know, what would you say? Almost a reggae? There's horns. It's- yeah, it's like it's like new wave ska. I, w- I, mean, I wanna I wanna pick it up. Yeah, yeah. You wanna pick it yeah. up, pick it up. A little bit. Uh Death and Glory. This is the next song. Great song. I love hearing uh Death and Glory because every every time uh I think about the, the line like everyone gets stuck with a sofa or a girl. <laughs> everyone <Yeah. laughs> makes payments on a sofa <laughs> or a girl. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, There's a line later. Like, <laughs> nun later joins the church. <laughs> it's like so yeah. great. The lines in that song are amazing. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, and yeah, I I don't think it's a a hammy version of uh, Thin Lizzy like some people thought. It just uh, it's what great. song do people? 
I mean, think it has, that it's a, it has a little bit of that vibe. Kind uh, of a, I mean, the sentiment behind the song is kind of a diss to these people who thought they were so big and so tough and like were so, you know, about their rocker ideals and then later fell into the same traps of everybody. Like, you know, the, the hands that have love and hate tattooed on them are the same ones that slap around their kids for not studying, you know? <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you think you're all big and bad, yeah, but then you end up paying on a sofa or a girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. Man, this dude and his words that I love to hear. Yeah. Uh, the song after that, uh, Coca-Cola. <laughs> Which is commodity cool. and addiction. Yeah. It's a, uh, that one is interesting. Using a uh, Coca-Cola ad campaign slogans to talk about cocaine. It's great. It's great. What, 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 what's not to like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one definitely came out of left field. Those parallels between, you know, one kind of addiction and the, the addiction of commercialization and commodity, you know? Yeah. That's kind of like the, we're still punk. <laughs> hey you made it this far here's your punk uh, the bombastic the card cheat with its wall of sound product, uh, production is that the one where they recorded everything twice yep Double, just doubled everything doubled everything doubled everything it was um, quite impressive because I think even uh, Mick Jones plays the piano on that one which is fantastic. Gotta love them. It's got a real like Thunder Road kind of punch behind it. It does mm-hmm. have a Thunder Road. Yeah, I had heard that um, uh, Bruce Springsteen was was a big fan of a uh, Clash and uh, really inspired. Was it the River? I believe. Yeah, that well, came yeah. out after this. Uh, yeah, it seems like the Boss and and Joe Strummer would have gotten along pretty well. Based on like how they present themselves and what they sing about, it just like seems like they're coming from a similar place in their heart. Sometimes, you know. I think so. Joe Strummer more anti-capitalist, Bruce Springsteen more pro-working class, but still, like, there's so much common ground in that Venn diagram. Yeah, I think you're right. Side three, side four, man, moving along, uh, is uh, Lover's Rock. What do you guys think of Lover's it. Rock? It's a funny song. Yeah. Would I you call it, it a disco song? Disco? It's almost disco, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in the beat, in the way that it comes across? They're definitely doing a bit. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess I could see it's, it's sort of like, because the subject matter is obviously about men taking responsibility for uh, progeny for, for like going out and uh, uh, getting people, getting women pregnant and not taking responsibility and things like that. So it's like, I could see them sort of aping a little bit of disco in that as they were seeing something like Saturday night fever and then being like, screw that. You have yeah, to, I, I never thought about that. like, Oh, like an intentional dig against like, Oh, you want to go out and do a bunch of blow and have casual sex? Well, now you got some kids. <laughs> like, and and of course, how would you write that song? You'd write it in a disco way, right? Like the, the track, the soundtrack for casual sex. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> Joe has already admitted that he does own that uh, giant hit discotheque album. <laughs> it's true. Uh, oh he saves his packets of tea. <laughs> the uh, Four Horsemen. What do you guys think of the Four Horsemen? I like that one. I do too. <laughs> it's, all right. it's kind of a forgettable track sometimes, but it's very good. In it, in, in the company of of these nineteen songs, it's a little bit forgettable to me. But I think that um, maybe on a single album, it like it would stand out more. 
I definitely have. I, I can't. I can't really pick at it. You know. Yeah. No, you're right. Uh, and of course, I'm not down. I love I'm not down. Yeah. The, the galloping guitar on that track is really good. I, I kind of feel like it's like the talking heads and thin Lizzie had a baby on that, uh, on that Whoa. particular track. It's really well, solid. Some nice bass on there too. Yeah. I never thought about mm-hmm. that. I love singing it though. Been thrown out, been beat up, been thrown out, not down. Mm-hmm. Uh, also one of my favorite lines. Uh, I've been shown up, but I've grown up. Love it. Great line. Uh, revolution rock. Hmm. Gotta have that cheese grater. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, stretching out into the uh, the reggae influences, revolution rock. Uh, everybody, smash up your s- seats, rock to the brand new beat. Um, yeah, can you feel it? Don't ignore it. It, it. I love revolution rock too because I feel like it's a perfect uh, counter to the. Uh, to London calling. So London calling has that sort of announcement that, you know, this is it, this is what's happening. And then revolution rock feels like a celebration. And then after that, a revolution rock, you have train in vain, which feels like a sort of a come. It's a coda, you know, it comes at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally, a coda. it makes sense that revolution rock sounds like the bookend of London calling because it was intended as the album closer. Uh, yeah. Train in Vain was thrown on at the last minute. In fact, after the artwork was already done, so it, it's the lyrics aren't on the the insert and and the name. The, it's not even on the track listing on the back. And it was like the biggest hit in the U.S. I think off this it record. Was yeah, it's wild. Oh, it reached uh, top thirty charts, and it was the first song uh, by the Clash to reach the United States top thirty charts. They they thought it was gonna they they had a like they had a deal to do like a freebie floppy di- like uh, like a uh, flexi disc with NME uh, New Music Express, and that was what they wrote Train in Vain. Over the course of uh, they wrote it one day and recorded it the next day, and it was intended to be just a free giveaway flexi disc, and something about that deal the deal just never came to fruition. So they were left with this song. And they just figured they'd throw it on the album. And yeah, and then it's their biggest hit <laughs> off the album in the US. I think that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just, you know, it's like lightning strikes. Dude, Train in Vain, though. That's, I I think, I, I, I knew Train in Vain before I knew who The Clash was. That's just one of those songs that, like, I feel like I've always known that song just from i don't know writing the listening to the radio in the car or whatever and i never associated it 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 wasn't until i got into the clash and heard it that i realized oh that that catchy song that i've known most of my life this like iconic punk band i'd never really considered Hmm. it a a punk rock song you know it just such an up-tempo catchy number you know yeah it's like a season of the witch by uh the zombies you think of that song is just ingrained in your in your brain from time of the season sorry uh and then you listen to the rest of the album and you're thinking oh my god i can't believe you know (laughs) it 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 makes perfect sense but it's like yeah it's like a puzzle piece just falls into place when you hear that song at the end of uh london oh yeah it's perfect it's a perfect send-off yeah uh because, I mean, this album gives you a lot. There's a lot of music here. He's saying a lot of things. And uh, t- to to close out on this song, it's it's perfect. Just gushing. Just gushing over this. Uh, I will say that I don't know if anybody's familiar with the band The Strike, but they basically d- created their entire sound around the card sheet <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the horns the guitars, the staccato, you know, stops that the Clash do. Um, it, it's it's very like a working class band that has a has these horns. Uh, this album has a pretty iconic cover. Yep, smashing that. Is it a bass? Yeah, it's a P bass. Yeah, didn't they smash them all the time? No, no. Well, that that one specifically was that was at one of those New York Palladium shows. And uh, 
Well, uh, do, Birch, do you know why Paul smashed it? He wasn't upset at the show. Was he upset like people the couldn't venue. get in or the venue wouldn't allow people to stand up? Yep. Oh yeah. He said it was a perfectly fine base. He he wasn't taking it out on the base. He was just angry that the they, they wouldn't let him st- uh, stand up. That was September twentieth, nineteen seventy nine. Uh, he he uh, immediately. Uh, well, not maybe immediately, but uh, uh, later regretted that he didn't sma- like, take the time to swap out to the backup base and smash the backup base because he smashed his, his like his nice primary base and then was left only with his backup base. Oh, I assume they were smashing bases left and right. No, it wasn't and the who. <laughs> and there's more to recover than that. I mean, it's 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 a direct sort of homage to the Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley, right? Yes, like, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. The, the way that the name of the band is uh, on the left-hand side. With the pink and green and similar yeah. fonts and everything, yeah. Yeah, the, the uh, photographer, she thought that it was way too blurry, that it shouldn't be used for the cover, but something about it, I mean, it really is iconic, and it just looks, it looks cool. It's got that that perfect level of contrast, you know, where where like the 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 central figure Paul is just like broken up, just into like shapes of black and white, you know, like like I don't know, it's just it's just so iconic. Yeah, you it know? is very iconic. The other thing about it too is you never see typically you never see bass players on the cover of an album, obviously, unless it's a you know a bass featuring a bass player like Jaco Pastores or something like something like that, Bootsy Collins. But it is really um, interesting. I used to have a poster of of London Calling, like one of those mega posters that was whatever, eight feet high or something like that. Um, And it took me forever to realize that it's not a guitar, that it's a bass. Because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's something unusual about it, but then because it looks so big in relationship to him. He's a skinny guy, and it looks like half the size of a... Of Paul. Birch, I had one of those giant posters too, but it was uh, the album art for Pork Soda. (laughs) (laughs) And it scared my little brother and I had to get rid of it. (laughs) My little brother was terrified of it. It's like this eight foot Pork Soda poster. (laughs) Are we getting Primus from Pee Wee's Big Yeah, I think we'll get some Primus. It's incredibly hot in here today. Incredibly <laughs> hot in here. Stay on target. Sorry. Birch, Sorry. It was guitar on the cover. You always, you always assume it's a guitar. Yeah. But there's yeah, something unusual sure, yeah. about it. Something a little... Uh, what more can be said about London Calling? Listen I'll to it right now. Even if he wasn't smashing a bass, I would put Paul Simon in on the cover because he's the most handsome member of the band. Mm-hmm. You might be right. Tiger beat uh, how about Topper? <laughs> Topper joking. is the fourth most handsome member of the Clash. I love Topper. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get any more Clash. So should we're not talking about, about Combat Rock. Combat right now. <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. Combat Rock has to be in here. We gotta get Combat Rock, or else I, I have no. What are we doing here? Repercut. Yeah, seriously, guys. You, we'll just, you you know it's not in here because it's not this book. Nope. It does that. That's nope. what it does. Combat wow. Rock is not going to be uh, discussed in this book. Mm. Yeah, that's a mm. that's a missed opportunity mm. in, in my book. That's weird. Yeah. So this is the last we get to talk about The Clash? Yeah, that's correct. That's so strange. Have you guys ever heard their last album? No. Cut the Crap? No. Or Cut did- the Crap. Okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. crap. <laughs> yeah, it's a baffling ordeal. <laughs> Uh, I will say, I mean, if you want, if you want more clash after that, though, you could go with Joe Strummer or Big Audio Dynamite. Um, I'm trying to remember which Big Audio has, uh, or Bad, as it's called, Big Audio <laughs> Dynamite. One of them does have. Uh, was, was there and also Paul, or was that just Mick for uh, BAD? Uh, Mick. Yeah, then but, let's see. but so I believe. Joe Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Birch. Yeah, yeah, but I believe um, Paul w- was featured, and then Joe came back for um, an album uh, they did together in, in Big Audio Do- Dynamite. Uh, Joe released good albums with the Mescaleros. Uh, yep. He also fronted the, mm-hmm. the Pogues for a while. Well, uh, you sure did. 
Chain was not able to front a band. No, uh, he was he was totally able to front a band. He was just into rave music at that point in time. He wa- <laughs> he wanted to go in a new direction. <laughs> also, both uh, Paul and Mick are collaborating members of Gorillas. I don't think the five of us are going to unearth anything brand new about this record. And anyone who's listened to this record before is even has a passing familiarity. Like it, 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 it this is on par with your exile on main street. Yeah. Uh, with own. Sorry, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's simply one of the quintessential classic and important like records ever put to wax. Don McLeese of Chicago Sun-Times referred to London Calling as punk's finest hour. I I can't argue that. I can't argue against that. Nope. Yeah. Uh, We can just continue to talk about combat rock if you want. (laughs) Robert Dimery may not like it, but I'm going to rock the Casper. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like that has, I mean, straight to hell. um, Should I stay or should I go? I mean, Casbah, Red Angel Dragon. Uh, Red Angel Dragon is awesome. So uh, I, uh, this is slightly off topic, but not really off topic. Uh, I was just scrolling through my feed last week, and someone shared—I don't know how recent it was—but you know, uh, uh, Jimmy Fallon does those uh, things on his show where where he'll like interpret interpret. Uh, impersonate a uh, musician like he did like the Neil Young one and the Bruce Springsteen one. He did one with Kevin Bacon where they sing different lyrics to should I stay or should I go? The, the, the lyrics are fine. It's kind of funny. It's funny enough for late night TV. But what I was really impressed by was Jimmy Fallon's Joe Strummer impersonation. It was very good. And, uh, and Kevin Bacon actually does a pretty good Mick Jones. <laughs> And they, they were styled correctly. They 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 had like the pop collars and like the military garb. They 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 looked very late seventies, early eighties clash. Know your rights. Know your rights. That that song alone should just get it in the book. Dude, all of those songs, like Straight to Hell, might be my favorite. Song. Yeah, it's really good. I will say that side two does have a does a wane a bit. I mean, I, I do, will say that my copy of the album, my side one, is way more worn out than my side two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will say that we've listened to many records in this book where side two was kind of a shit show, and they were still in the book. Yeah, yeah. Right. Good point. You're right. Uh, yeah. Anybody got a favorite song? For this for this album, I just am clamp curious. down Guns clamp of down. Brixton. Okay, Today it's clamp down. Yesterday it was Guns of Brixton. Day before that it was Spanish Bombs. But normally it's on uh, normally it's on side B. Oof. Rudy can't fail. Card cheat. I'm not down. Train in vain. <laughs> Title track. Yeah, Guns of Brixton. That's that's where I I hang that, out. That's great. Check out uh, live at Shea Stadium if you haven't. You guys would love it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even going to go around the room. And if I do, uh, you're all off the podcast. If anybody, <laughs> anybody does not give this a thumbs up, you're, you're crazy. All right. Next time we'll be talking about Japan, quiet life. I'll talk. Thanks y'all. <laughs>